0: Well, good morning, everyone. Good to see you. Um, You know, one of the interesting things about going to a live sporting event is how, in an instant, a group of strangers become a community. We're wearing the same colors. We're sharing the same space. We are uh, rooting for the same team, desperate for the same outcome. And. Last weekend, my family and I had the opportunity to travel and go down to Raleigh, North Carolina, and we were there to support the Syracuse women's lacrosse team who were playing in the final four, and I got a picture of you of the crowd, and you can see, like, this is a group of people who moments before did not know each other, but all of a sudden, we're thrown into this set of bleachers. It's like you take a group of strangers and a set of bleachers, and you just add water, and presto, you have community. Actually, in this case, I think they were adding alcohol more than water, if I'm being honest with you. Uh, But it was quite an experience for us to be there. And in fact, if you can find me and Maddie, here's a little zoomed-in picture of us in the bottom corner there we are. <laughs> Maddie's got her headphones on. It was a little bit loud there for her. But, you know, this group of people that we spent a couple hours together with, it really felt like a community. It really had all of the conditions of community in a sort of a microcosm moment. We, we met each other. We introduced ourselves to each other. We even told each other a little bit about why we were there. We, we celebrated with each other. We found ourselves hugging strangers and high-fiving strangers when they scored a goal. We even had real moments of community where we would apologize to each other. I'm sorry for bumping into you. Sorry for spilling my beer beer on your shoes. Like, we had these actual moments of, I was not spilling my beer on people's shoes, but they were spilling their beer on my shoes. And and, uh, even moments of challenging each other, where we would turn to each other and say, come on, let's get loud and let's get hype. And then, unfortunately, because Syracuse lost the game, we also grieved together. It was like a full circle community moment. We all need community. We say that often here at Trinity, and it's one of our core values is community. And the Bible says that we were created for meaningful, life-giving relationships. And the reason why we were created for that is because the Bible teaches us right from the beginning that we were created in the image of a triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, one God, three persons, uh, a God who has existed for all eternity in relationship with himself, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that's the image in which we have been created. And so we've been created in the image of a God who has and has and will have eternal relationship, and so we desire it. And so our loneliness and our need for each other is not a result of the fall. We need community Not because something is wrong with us, but because something is actually very right with us. But what we learn very quickly, often first day in daycare or or kindergarten, is that community is not easy. (laughs) It's challenging. It's hard. And the same thing, community, that has the power and ability to deliver to us some of our greatest joys in life also has the power to bring to us some of our greatest sorrows and some of our greatest pains. And so what do we do? What choice do we have? C.S. Lewis in his book, The Four Loves, talks about the tension of loving someone or something so much that it hurts. And he says this, he says, there is no safe investment. To love at all is to be vulnerable. If you're gonna love anything, you're gonna have to make yourself vulnerable in the process. He goes on to write, love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you wanna make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. Yes, it will not be broken. It will actually become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. He says that the alternative to tragedy, or at least to the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The only place outside heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and perturbations of love is hell. The point he's making is that the risk of loving people is much, much less than the risk of not loving people. The risk of keeping our hearts away from others does more damage to our souls than the pain of potentially giving our hearts to people who will hurt us and, uh, and will break our hearts. And this is where we live our lives in community. How do we navigate this reality where it's not good not to be in community and it's not good uh, and it's challenging to be in community? And we're going to actually look at a passage in Acts chapter 2. If you want to go there in your Bibles or on your phones, the last portion in Acts chapter 2 where Luke gives us this beautiful snapshot of the early church and what it looked like for them to do life together. And I want us to look at this and make this sort of our true north this morning. And from this snapshot, get a better picture of what real community might look like. Beginning in verse two of Acts chapter two, I'm reading from the ESV. Luke says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and all And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. It's one of the most beautiful pictures of community that we have in the scriptures. One of the most beautiful, compelling pictures of the church. And 2,000 years later, I look at this and I say, let it be. (laughs) Let it be true. Of us, And so there's four characteristics in this passage There's more, but I just want to highlight four characteristics that I think mark biblical community, four metrics by which we can measure even our church here at Trinity Assembly to say, are we the community that Jesus wants us to be? And the first characteristic is this real devotion, real devotion. So summer feels like it's here. Technically, it's not here for a little bit longer, June 21st, I think, but it's felt like it was, it's been here for a while. Beautiful week. I hope you're enjoying it. And as summer comes, we have uh, trips and vacations, and we know that we'll miss some of you on certain weekends. You'll be going and getting away, and I'm glad that you get to do that. One of the things I've learned about when, I, when, I, when someone's taking a vacation, I like to know what are you doing on your vacation, because devotion can be seen in how people take vacations you can see what people are truly devoted to. For example, some people are devoted to being by the water 24-7. We call them beach bums. And so they just want to get to a beach and they just want to stay there from the moment it opens to the moment it closes, devoted to the beach. Some people are devoted to being in nature, camping, and hiking and being out there with the bears and the animals. I call them crazy, but, but some people love that. That's what they're all about. Camping for me is a, is a, is a, a not top-tier hotel. <laughs> it's a second-step hotel. Then we're roughing it as a family. We're not campers. Some people are devoted to getting to a big city and exploring the city and walking through the villages. And, and some people are devoted to getting to an amusement park and spending four or five days on roller coasters and a water park. Some people are devoted to doing as much as possible on their vacation. And some people are devoted to doing as little as possible on their vacation. Some people are devoted to experiences and adventure, and then others to rest and relaxation. Some want to see sites or landmarks. Some just want to shop. Some just want to eat. And uh, if you followed us last weekend in North Carolina when we were on our mini little vacation, you would know that we're devoted to finding good food. That's what When we go on vacation, we're devoted to finding the best bakeries and restaurants in the area, and, and we found them. Now, The challenge challenge is when people are on the same vacation but devoted to different things, right? You got to be careful who you go on vacation with. Why? Because you can't be devoted to everything. We have unlimited funds, unlimited time, unlimited, I'm sorry, limited funds. You're like, where are you guys going on vacation We have limited time, limited funds, limited energy, limited resources. We can't be devoted to everything. And I just want to say this morning that the church can't be devoted to everything. We can't. We have limited time, limited funds, limited resources, limited energy. We need to be devoted to that which the Lord calls us to be devoted to. And in this passage, it says that the early church was devoted to four things. The apostles' teaching, fellowship, The breaking of bread and prayers. Now, actually in the Greek, that verb devoted is better translated continually devoted in an ongoing way. Not stop and start, not once and never again, but continually devoted. It's a good reminder for those of us that have been into the church or in this church for a long time. It's great if we were devoted at some point, but are we continually devoted? That's what the early church was, continually devoted to these four things. First off, to the apostles' teaching. Now, in this context, they were hearing from the actual apostles, the the followers of Jesus, those who walked with him. But we also need to surround ourselves and be surrounded by the teaching of God's word. We need to know God's word. We need to devote ourselves to God's word. We need to be a people of the word. We need to gather around strong biblical teaching because there's so many other sources of bad teaching out there that we have access to. And earlier this week on Instagram, I saw a post that said, the Bible does not say these things. Jesus never said these things. And then it gave us four things. Number one, be true to yourself. Jesus never said be true to yourself. That's what the world says. Jesus said deny yourself and follow me. Jesus said your heart is desperately wicked. You don't even know your own self. And so Jesus did not say be true to yourself. Jesus did not say just be a good person. Just try your hardest to be a good person and that'll be enough. Jesus said we've all sinned. We've all fallen short. None of us can just be a good person. That's why we needed him to be a perfect person in our place. Jesus never said, your happiness is all that matters. Chase after your happiness and your dreams. Jesus says, your holiness is what matters. To be set apart for my purposes and my plans. And Jesus never said, put yourself first. He said, be a servant to all. You're not gonna hear the teachings of the apostles out there. You're just not. The message of this world the mantra of these kingdoms of this world, it's, it's, it's out of step with the heart of God. And so what do we do? We devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching. This summer, if you have to travel and miss a Sunday, I totally understand that. I'm, our family will travel at times. Make every effort to listen to the message. Either we put it on SoundCloud, we put it on iTunes, we put it on YouTube, we put it on Facebook. I mean, it's out there. You can access it all through our website. Just because you miss church doesn't mean you have to miss church, right? You need to devote yourself. We need to devote ourselves to the teaching of God's word. Secondly, to fellowship, just to meeting together. That's why we do things like dinner parties. That's why we're having our church picnic next Sunday. For some of you, your next step after this morning's message is going to be getting on your phone, going to the church picnic page on our church website, and registering yourself. We have almost 200 people already registered, but we have space for more. If you've been sitting back going, I don't know, it's not really my thing, we want you there. You need fellowship and meeting together. Third thing was the breaking of bread, which was having meals together, but also specifically celebrating the Lord's Supper communion, which we're going to do this morning. And then the fourth thing is prayers, both in the temple and in homes. So biblical community is continually devoted to truth, life together, space together, and a prayerful dependency. Now, what else are human beings often devoted to? I wrote a list of some things that maybe sometimes we're devoted to more than we're devoted to what the Scriptures say we should be. I'm devoted to my preferences, getting things my way, devoted to my comfort level, devoted to my schedule, devoted to my definition of truth, devoted to power and control, devoted to societal norms, devoted to the American dream, devoted to keeping up with my neighbors, devoted to my kids, giving them everything that they want or I think they need to keep up with other kids, devoted to building up my career, my retirement, my legacy, my future. These are not necessarily bad things right I didn't just list anything that would be considered a sin or wrong in and of itself but we can't be devoted to everything no man Jesus said can serve two masters and the early church was continually devoted any of those things that I just talked about preferences comfort societal norms keeping up with your neighbors you can form clubs around any of those things but the church is not formed around any of those things The church is formed around continual devotion to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayers. Real devotion. The second thing that we see in this uh, passage is that the church is marked by radical generosity. Our dog Mickey, uh, he's, by the way, those of you that have been following his journey with me, uh, he's calming down, he's getting better. He's growing up a little bit. He's less annoying. Um, but he still barks at everything and anything that walks in front of our house. Like, he thinks he's protecting us. And so he, he, he's got this very loud, aggressive bark that kind of, like, it's, his bark is bigger than he is. And I didn't realize this, but Aaron told me yesterday that the only time that he's not barking at someone who's either out front or in our driveway or, or whatever is when it's me. She said, when you show up, I don't even have to know you're here And based on how he responds, I know it's you. So what does he do? He doesn't bark. He he whines. He kind of whines. And I think, if I could get into his little pea brain, I think he realizes his reign of terror is over now. (laughs) The alpha is home, and he's back in his second chair. He's back in his place, and so he's whining and kind of groaning and grieving. So it's funny. When she hears him make that unique noise designated just for me, She knows that I'm there. Now listen, generosity is how you know that devotion is there. It's the tell. You can talk that you're devoted. You can talk about devotion. But generosity is the tell on devotion. When you see generous people living generous lives, you know that they're devoted to the right Things. And in this passage, I don't know how you felt as I read it, but there is a shocking, somewhat uncomfortable level of generosity in the early church. They're selling their possessions and giving the proceeds away to people in need. And in some ways, what's happening in Acts 2 is probably unique to this moment in history, the specifics of it, but the principle of it, which is radical generosity, is timeless. The early church was generous with their possessions, with their homes, and with their lives. Now I just want to say, this is not communal living, this is not a case for socialism or communism, because you have to notice a couple things about this passage. Number one, the giving was voluntary. It was not compelled by authority or by the government. Nobody was making these people give, they were choosing to give. But number two, they still had their own personal possessions, because where were they meeting? In their homes, So this generosity did not mean that they sold everything and no longer had homes and they all lived together in some sort of communal setting. It didn't mean that Peter, James, and John were dictating to people what they should sell and what they should own and what they should give. It's none of that. It's generosity from the heart. The abolition of private property is not commanded or even implied here. On the other hand, what is being commended is voluntary radical generosity. Radical generosity. So what would generosity and devotion to generosity look like in our church. And we often talk about these three words that begin with the letter T, time, talent, and treasure. To be generous with our time, and so many of you are. So many of you serve in so many ways. Some of you are seen in your service. Some of you are unseen. On Friday, there are people here cleaning. You wouldn't even know who they are. There's people who help take care of the property. You don't know who they are. So many of you are so generous with your time. As a leader at this church, I'm so blessed by the generosity of people. We never have a hard time finding people to do things when we have a need. You're generous with your time. Generous with your talents not hoarding your gift to yourself, but if God has given you a gift it's not for you, it's to bless others. Do you hear that? If God has given you a gift, it's not for you, it's for others. He wants to bless you through your gifts, and so many of you are so generous in so many ways with your talents and your gifts. And then your treasure, your finances. This is an unbelievably generous church. We are such a financially strong church because of the generosity of people in this church who see the mission and are giving not to the church but giving to Jesus through the church. And through the church, it goes to neighbors in need, it goes to local schools, it it goes to missionaries and ministries in our country and all over the world, generosity, time, talent, and treasure. But this week, as I was thinking about what it means to be generous, I thought of three more words that start with the same letter, three more ways that we can be generous as we're being a community of people together. I want to share them with you. The first way is this, the attention that we give to others. One of the greatest gifts we can give to people in this season of history where things are sped up and distracted in unprecedented ways is just our attention. It is just to be present with someone. Just to look someone in the face and not be thinking about what you're going to do next and what the people over there are talking about and the other conversation that you'd rather be in on. But to just give generously your attention to someone else. What a gift! What a blessing that all of us need, that we're worth each other's attention. (laughs) That every person you've talked to is not just a mere mortal, but a person that's been created in the image of God and very much deserves your full attention, generous with our attention to one another. We can practice that on Sundays as we're in the lobby, and there's a lot of distractions and things going on. How can we find time? Some of you, you have kids. It's almost impossible for you to devote your attention. If you devote your attention to someone, it's bad for the rest of us because your kids are going to tear the whole place apart. I understand that. So what do we do? We find places outside of Sundays to begin to be generous with our attention to each other. Let's get coffee together. Let's have a meal together. Come to our house. Let's swim together. Let's do something together, life together, attention. Second thing is the access that we offer to others. So if the attention that we give is something that flows from us, the access that we offer is something that flows towards us. And if you're actually going to give your life away, if you're actually going to make disciples, which is the one thing Jesus told us to do, you're going to have to give other people access to your life. Into yourself, It's a number one rule of leadership development. Leaders are not developed in classrooms. They're not developed by reading books. They're not developed through theory. Leaders are developed when they have access to other leaders. It's the only way that it works. It's the same way with discipleship. If you're going to give your faith away, you can't just come to church on Sundays and sit in classes on Wednesdays. You actually have to give access to other people in this space, to your real life. they got to see you when you get stressed out. they got to see you discipline your children in your house. They got to see you process an awkward conversation with your spouse. They got to see these sort of things because that's the access that we need if we're going to actually grow. So ask yourself, am I generous with the access that I give to people in this church or am I very actually closed off? And then the third way that we can be generous, the last word here is the assumptions that we make about others. So it's the attention we give to others, it's the access we offer to others, but then lastly, it's the assumptions. That we make about each other. If we're going to be a healthy community, we need to be generous in the way we think about one another. Not jump to conclusions, not think the worst, not expect the worst, but to be radically generous in the assumptions. I'm just going to assume that even though I don't like what they did, I'm going to assume that their heart's in a good place. I'm going to assume that they didn't mean to hurt me with that. I'm going to assume the best in them. So these are three ways that I think as a church we can grow We're very generous with time, talent, and treasure. But what about these three? Are we generous with the attention we give, the access we allow or offer, and the assumptions we make? This is what was happening in the early church, radical generosity. And then the third thing that we see in this text is this, respect and favor. Verse 47, did you notice it? It said that the early church was praising God and having favor with all the people. That stopped me in my tracks. It did not say they were having favor just with each other or that they were just having favor with Christians or they were having favor with people who think like them, act like them, live like them, vote like them, believe like them. It said that they had favor with all the people. All the people here refers to people outside of the church. This, by the way, was also true of Jesus. In Luke 2, 52, it says that Jesus grew both in body and in wisdom, gaining favor with God and People, there was no qualifier on that noun people, all people. Now, I want to say, will Christians at times, because of our faith, potentially face persecution and misunderstanding? Yes, of course. There's a long history of that on various levels. We're not of this world, and Jesus said, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. So does that happen? It does happen. We do encounter that. But generally speaking, what the early church had here was that they lived at peace with everyone around them, and they had favor with their neighbors, and with their coworkers, whether they believed like them or not. and What a goal for our church to be a church that is respected and has favor by our community, by the leaders in our community, by people in our community who look at us and say, we would miss them if they were gone. If that church shut down tomorrow, it would be, it would be sad for our community. We want to be that sort of church that we would be missed if we were gone. Now, how do we do this? How do we earn favor and respect? The first thing, and this is gonna relieve some of the tension maybe some of you are feeling right now is this. The first thing is that that must never be our actual goal. Our primary goal is not to be respected by this world or to have favor with people who think differently. That's not our primary goal. If that's our primary goal, you know what it leads us to do? To compromise and to back off of the truth and to not speak what the Bible teaches. It's not our primary goal, number one. But what do we actually do? Secondly, we live lives that are beautiful, and we live lives that are meaningful. I saw a quote just yesterday that says something like this. Christians should live lives that make unbelievers doubt their unbelief. Christians should lead lives that unbelievers look at them and go, I don't believe everything they believe, I can't go all the way with them on what they've committed their lives to, but there's something about their life that I, that I love. There's something about their life that I respect. There's something about who they are in the workplace. There's something about how they treat other people. If you're a boss or an owner of a company in this place, there's something about the way you care for the people underneath you. If you're a team member, there's something about the way you lift up the other team members that you work with. If you do work that feels like it's sort of at the entry level, there's a way in which you can devote yourself to that with such excellence and passion that people will notice what you're doing. And it's the way in which we live our lives that are beautiful and meaningful that can point to a beautiful and meaningful faith in Jesus. Respect and favor. And the third thing that we can do as a church is we can add value to our community, working for the good of our community. And Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, writes to the people of Israel who are in exile thinking, God, when are you going to get us out of here? And Jeremiah says, hold on, you're going to be there a little while. So plant gardens, have families, and then he says this phrase, work for the good of the city. I believe, that even though that was a specific word to Israel in that specific place, in that specific time, that that truth is still true for us. How are we as individuals as a church, how do we work for the good of our city? How are we working for the good of the town of Clay? How are we working for the good of Syracuse? How are we working for the good of Baldensville and Fayetteville and East Syracuse and Cicero, North Syracuse? Wherever you live, our lives can add value to the places that we live. In. And in being so, we can be more like the early church. You know, I love that Luke puts those two uh, phrases together. They praised God and they had favor with all people. Because sometimes in the church, we feel boxed in. Like we can do one or the other. We can either be praise God and be fully devoted to him, but if we do that, then people are gonna we're not going to have favor with people. Or we can have favor with people, but then we have to stop praising God. And yet the early church found a way to thread the needle and do both. They praised God, and they had favor with all people. All right, so so far we've seen real devotion, radical generosity, respect and favor. And then lastly, I'm going to ask Pastor Antonia to join me. The last thing that marked... The early church was this, the right kind of growth, the right kind of growth. The last verse of our passage said this, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. What that simply means is that converts were coming in. People were turning from their previous faith or their previous religions, and they were coming to Jesus and placing their faith and trust in him. But it was the Lord's work. And we get to the end of Acts chapter 2, and we're like, yeah, we want that. We want our church to grow. We want these seats to be full every Sunday. We want to knock that wall out and double the size of the sanctuary and fill it multiple times over because there's 60,000 people in the town of Clay, many of which do not know Jesus, right? So we want all that, but we don't get there. We don't get the result without the process. How many of you learned in life? You don't get the six-pack for the beach, without a a, a lot of work in the gym and with your diet and with your exercise, right? You don't get a degree without all of the work. You don't grow as a person without the work. You don't get the result without the process. It says the Lord added to their numbers, but the process is, right, real devotion, real devotion to him. We need to be devoted to the things that he's called us to be devoted to, radical generosity, respect and favor in our community. See, our goal at Trinity is not numerical growth, There's a danger to growing numerically but not growing spiritually, and that can happen sometimes. Our goal is not numerical growth. Here's our goal as a church. Ready, listen, everyone lock in. Our goal is faithfulness to Jesus, to love Jesus, to serve Jesus, to live on mission, which means we heard it last week from Pastor Danny, to give our lives away for the very things that Jesus gave his life away for. We're not giving our lives away for a a retirement account. Nothing wrong with that. That's wisdom. You should have one. But that's not where our ultimate devotion goes, right? We're not giving our lives away to have bigger homes and nicer cars. We're not giving our lives away to give our kids every advantage over every other kid. We're giving our lives away because Jesus gave his life away for lost people. And if lost people matter to Jesus, then they need to matter to us. This is what it means to see real growth, to be faithful, to love and serve Jesus, to live on mission and to be his people. And if we will do that, you know what Jesus does? He adds to our number. He adds to our number. I don't add to our number at Trinity. You don't add to our number. It doesn't mean that we don't have a part to play in inviting people and reaching out to people, but it's Jesus who builds the church. We have the great joy and privilege of being a co-partner in his work. And the motivation, by the way, to do all of this is to be found in the simple truth of look what it costs Jesus to form his people. In Acts 20, 28, Paul is giving this heartfelt farewell speech to the elders in in Ephesus. They know that they'll never see him again. He's going to go to Rome and he's going to be executed. And he's speaking to the pastors, the elders, the leaders of the local church in Ephesus. And he tells them, shepherd the flock, shepherd the church. And then he adds this qualifier so that they would never forget why they do what they do. And it's why we do what we do. Shepherd the church who Jesus purchased with his blood. This community that we're talking about this morning, real devotion, radical generosity, respect and favor, the right kind of growth. Jesus purchased this with his blood. He paid the ultimate price that you could be sitting here this morning. He he paid the ultimate price so that others in this community could be a part of what the Lord is doing here. This is the motivation. So we say, Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice, your shed blood that you purchased your people with your, you ransomed us, you paid the price for our sin so that we might be your community. And now here's our prayer. Make us the people that you dream us to be. (laughs) Jesus had a dream for his people and he actually prays it to the Father in John 17. Let them be one as you and I are one and let the world know them by their love for one another. That's what community is and that's what it means. And that's what it cost Jesus. And that's why at Trinity, we're so devoted to being the people that Jesus dreams we can be. Let's pray together this morning.